Well, welcome. This is something uh, new and different due to the coronavirus uh, that is currently plaguing our country. Uh, we are going to be doing our Bible classes. I'm going to be doing our Bible classes virtually uh, through, our, through our website. And I'm doing that so you can have some encouragement during this time, so you can get some encouragement from the scriptures, and so that we can stay on schedule with our Bible classes, even though, unfortunately, at this time, and maybe for the foreseeable future, we're not going to be able to assemble together uh, for our Bible classes. And so what we want to do is a couple of things here. First, uh, I want to invite you, if you are watching this video, to Turn in your Bible to the book of 2 Peter. We're going to keep with our 2 Peter schedule. Uh, we're going to actually be in 2 Peter chapter 3 primarily, but I do want to say some things about 2 Peter 1 and 2 Peter 2 since it has been a few days uh, since we've been able to talk about this particular book. Uh, I want you to know that I am going to make available to you, and I want to thank Brother Brian for uh, helping with these videos and helping me get uh, my material out. I do want you to know that I'm going to have copies of my outlines like I usually give to, to our members. Those are going to be made available to you through the website, so you can still have those. And I certainly hope that these videos will encourage you and, and help give you good understanding as you continue with hopefully your daily Bible reading and studying for your Bible classes. And so let's go ahead and dig right into the book of 2 Peter. We want to conclude this particular book in this video. And just as a brief review, I want to go back to some things that were taught and learned in 2 Peter chapter 1. One of our shepherds, Brother, Brother Mitch Johnson, taught 2 Peter 1 a few days ago, and I certainly appreciate him for doing that. If you remember, back in 2 Peter chapter 1, we learn some very important things that help set up the context for this particular book. We learn in verse number one that the author of this particular book or this letter was the Apostle Peter. He's writing to, to Christians. He's writing to Gentile Christians, Jewish Christians, Christians that are probably being persecuted at this time. And in the first few verses, in an effort to encourage these Christians, one of the things that Peter talks about is he talks about spiritual growth. He talks about key ingredients for a Christian or disciple to grow properly in the Lord. In verse number five, he talks about things that we need to constantly be adding to our faith, things like virtue or moral excellence knowledge of the scriptures, self-control, endurance or perseverance, godliness, piety and reverence for God, brotherly kindness, knowing how to treat our brethren properly, and love, agape, love. Peter says in verse number 8 of chapter 1 that if we have these qualities in our lives and if we increase and grow in these qualities, not only will the entrance into heaven be supplied to us, but it will be abundantly supplied to us. We won't have to doubt our salvation. We can know with assurance that we are on our way to heaven. He says that we won't stumble in verse number 10. He says in verse number 9 that we will be blind or short-sighted. We will be everything that God wants us to be if we grow properly in the Lord. 
So the first few verses of, of chapter 1 of 2 Peter have to do with spiritual growth, key ingredients for spiritual growth. And unfortunately, I must say that for many Christians, for many Christians, they, they fail to grow. Unfortunately, for many Christians, they may technically have, have been Christians for several decades, maybe for 40, 50, or even 60 years, but they haven't grown. They're, they're still little babies in Christ. And so Peter says we need to grow. And then when you get to verses, verse number 16 of this book, after talking about key ingredients for spiritual growth in verses 16 through 18, Peter talks about some very interesting things. He talks about the eyewitness testimony, his personal eyewitness testimony to the majesty of Jesus. If you look very carefully at chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, you will see there Peter points back to a very specific moment in the ministry of Jesus. He points back to something he himself saw and heard, and that is he heard the very voice of God on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you remember, we can read about the majesty or the glory that of Jesus, the glory that he revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration. We can read about that several times on the gospel. One particular example that comes to my mind is Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew 17, we can read about Jesus going on a mountain, probably Mount Hermon, and he goes with three of his apostles. He goes with Peter, and he goes with James and John, and on that mountain, Jesus has a conversation. He meets with Moses and Elijah. And these three apostles witness Jesus speaking to Moses and Elijah. And then eventually they hear the very voice of God thunder from heaven saying that Jesus was his beloved son in whom he was well pleased. Peter heard the very voice of God on this occasion and he became very afraid. But not only did they hear the voice of God, they also saw Jesus transfigured before them. He was transfigured in a glorious state, a majestic state, and this again was confirmation that he was in fact the Messiah. And so Peter points back to that to give Christians confidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be. They were eyewitnesses to the majesty of Jesus. They were eyewitnesses to the fact that the Old Testament prophets their words were coming to pass through Jesus. In fact, in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1, notice what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. He says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. When Peter talks about a matter of one's own interpretation there, he's not talking about how we interpret the Bible today. That's not his point. His point is, is when it came to those who wrote the scriptures, who penned the words of the scriptures, men like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophets specifically, they did not put their own spin on their writings. They did not write down things that were coming from their own minds. Instead, he says in verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but men moved by the Holy Spirit, they spoke from God. So Peter's point here is that the writings of the Old Testament prophets, the things they spoke of concerning Jesus, these things came from the Holy Spirit. 
These things were inspired by God. The source of the scriptures are not from the mind of men. Peter wants these Christians to trust in that and to grow in that. And so understanding that is important to really being able to grasp what Peter is going to go on to talk about in the next few chapters. And so like I normally do in our Bible classes, in this video, what I just want to do is give you a, 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 an overview of what Peter is talking about in chapter 2 of 2 Peter and in chapter 3. And if you have any questions about these things I'm going to talk about, you can email me, you can call me. I'll be more than happy uh, to answer your questions through email or through, a, through a, a phone call. Okay, and so let's go to chapter 2. In chapter 2, Peter's going to go on to talk about some of the things that threaten the spiritual growth of Christians. And, and the main thing that Peter says that threatens our growth are false teachers. False teachers. In verse number one of chapter two, Peter says this, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. A couple of things I want to say about this text. First, I want you to notice how Peter here is making the point that false teachers are real. False teachers do exist. This idea that, that one person can teach what they want to teach and another person can teach what they want to teach and God is okay that, with that, that, that is just foreign to Bible teaching. Peter says that there are people out there who teach error. Particularly in this case, he's saying, he says that there are people who were teaching error when it came to Jesus. Here he's probably referring to Gnostic teachers, teachers who denied the fact that Jesus even came in the flesh. Peter's saying that those kind of men were plaguing and being problems to the people of God in the first century. In fact, if you look at that text very carefully, it appears that Peter is also making the point that these false teachers were coming from among Christians. These were maybe people who had been baptized for the remission of their sins. These were people who were maybe technically part of the Lord's church, and yet they were teaching error. They had apostatized. And this is something no different than what Paul told those Ephesian elders in, in Acts 20, verse 28, when he told them to be watchful and careful because there would be false teachers who would come from among them. There would be false teachers who would come from among the eldership of the church in Ephesus. And so the, these false teachers that Peter is talking about here are probably false teachers who were coming from among the brethren. And in verse number two, if you look at verse number two, he says, many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Here Peter is saying that these false teachers who would come from among the brethren, they would deceive many people. They would lead many people astray. Many of God's people will go astray. And that same thing continues to happen today when you have false teachers who come from among the brethren and they lead God's people astray. So that's his point in the first two or three verses of chapter 1. When you go to verses 4 through 9, his point in verses 4 through 9 is that even though there are false teachers who are coming from among the brethren, these Christians needed to understand that eventually God was going to punish these false teachers. 
In fact, in verses 4 through 9, he makes the point that God has a history of punishing and bringing destruction on, on false teachers and people who, who don't stay in the way of truth. He mentions four different examples here in the text to make his point. First, in verse 4, he talks about angels. He says that God did not spare angels who sinned against him. He committed them to pits of darkness reserved for, for judgment. Here, Peter says that you need to know that God's going to punish these false teachers because look at what he did to angels. Look at what he did to those majestic beings who sinned against him. He punished them. In verse number five, he mentions the people of Noah's day. He mentions the fact that God punished those in the days of Noah who rebelled against God. In verse number six, he mentions the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He mentions people who were involved in wicked and gross immorality and how God destroyed them with fire and brimstone from heaven because they did not follow the way of truth. And then in verse 7, he talks about Lot and how Lot was spared, but those other people who were involved in just ungodly behavior, unprincipled men, they suffered. They suffered judgment from God. And so Peter's point in verses 4 through 9 is God has a history of punishing those who don't follow his will. And then when you get to verses 10 through 19, Peter then talks about the behavior or the character of these false teachers. I won't, I won't take the time to read all that text. I, I trust you'll do that uh, at home with your family. But just notice some of the things he says about these false teachers. In verse 10, he calls them self-willed. In verse 12, he calls them unreasoning animals. He compares them to animals. In verses 14 through 15, he compares them to the, to the prophet Baal in the Old Testament, a man who was greedy, who preached and, and taught things for the wrong reason. And, and Peter also says that these men have eyes that are full of adultery, Probably in this case, spiritual adultery. These men are not faithful. They're not faithful to God. And so in verses 10 through 19, he talks about the behavior or the character of these false teachers. And as you study that section, compare it to what you find in the book of Jude. It is interesting how when I was studying this section, a lot of the things that, that Peter says in, in, in that text reminds me of the things Jude said in fact, in some cases, it's the same language that Jude uses to describe false teachers in his epistle. And so, and so see if you can notice that as you study that section. And then finally, in verses 20 through 22 of 2 Peter 2, Peter goes on to talk about the, the outcome for Christians who allow themselves to be deceived by these false teachers. There's three things I want you to notice there in that text. In fact, I'll just read it very quickly. Verse 20 of chapter 2. For after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them to have not known the way of righteousness then having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them, and it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. 
Here, Peter is talking about Christians who leave the Lord. Christians who have tasted the kindness of God and been saved or redeemed by the blood of Jesus, but they allow themselves to be deceived and led astray by false teachers. He says three things I want you to key in on here. First, he says that when a Christian leaves the Lord, he's worse off at that point than he was before he even obeyed the gospel. He's worse off because now he knows the truth. He's tasted of the kindness of God. He's tasted of the salvation found in Jesus, and yet he allows himself to be deceived and to go back out into the world. That person is worse off then than he was before he even obeyed the gospel. He then compares him to a dog eating his own vomit. What a gross thing to think about, a dog eating its own vomit. That's how God describes a Christian who leaves, who leaves him and goes back to the world or goes off into false religion. He also says it's like a pig who after he's cleaned up, he returns right back to the mud. Again, these are gross Gross images to think about, and yet they are exactly how the Holy Spirit describes Christians who leave the Lord and go into error. And so that, that's just a brief summary of 2 Peter 2. I want to say something now about 2 Peter 3, our main chapter for consideration. And there are 18 verses in this chapter, and so let me just say a few things about, about how Peter concludes this book, and, and then that will be this video. In verses 1 through 4, verses 1 through 4, Peter says this, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I am trying to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. It's interesting how as a preacher, Peter felt the need to remind God's people of things that they had heard before, that they knew. And that's the same mission of a preacher today, to at times help just remind Christians of things they've known for years but they just need to be reminded of so they can continue in those things. He says in verse 2 that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your prophets. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now we looked in chapter 2 at how Peter talked about God's history for bringing judgment on the wicked, particularly those who teach error. And here Peter's going to revisit that, the judgment of God. He's talking about the judgment of God and he begins by saying, look, you need to remember these things that were spoken to you already. I think when you look at this and you look at the New Testament as a whole, you'll see that the things Peter is talking about here, they're not foreign to New Testament teaching. They're not things that we cannot read about several times throughout the New Testament. They're not things that Jesus did not teach about at various, time, various times in his ministry or the Apostle Paul or even others. He says you need to remember this, that Mockers are going to come. People who mock the Lord, people who mock the promises of God, they're going to come. And when are they going to come? Well, Peter says they're going to be in the last days. What are the last days? 
Well, the last days, from my understanding, and, and this is the same language is also found in the, in the book of Hebrews and in Acts chapter 2, it is a reference to the last dispensation of time. It is a reference to the new covenant of Jesus Christ. The fact that there will not be another covenant or another testament after the one in which we're living in, the one of Jesus, the one that he instituted when he died on the cross and was buried and raised from the dead. We are living in the last dispensation, the last covenant, the last testament, the last days. These are the last days. Peter says that in this dispensation that in which we're in, you're going to have mockers who come. You're going to have people who say that God's not going to keep his promise to come back, to send his son back, to bring judgment on the world. That's not going to happen. Look at how long it has been. Look at how much time has elapsed and the Lord has not come back yet. Peter says, beware of those folks. Beware of those people. You know, it's been 2,000 years since our Lord has ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of God. And we live in a time, even among some of our own brethren who call themselves our brethren, who mock the fact that our Lord is going to one day come back for his people and a resurrection will take place. They mock that. They say either we don't understand the scriptures properly or, or, or the Lord's just not going to be faithful about his promise. We live in days like that. And Peter says, beware of that. When you look at verse number five, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at the time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I want to say a few things about these verses. First, notice how Peter in this text, he talks about two judgments, two judgments from God. The first in verses five through six, if you're looking at it, is the judgment that took place in the days of Noah. He reminds his audience of the time when God destroyed the whole world, and he used that language, destroyed, by sending a global flood. Because of the sins of the world, because of the wickedness even of man's heart, God wiped out every living thing with the exception of Noah and the seven members of his family and the animals that, that, that God wanted preserved on the ark. God wiped out everything else. It was a global judgment, a global destruction with water. Peter says, remember that. Now, he brings that point up because he's going to use that as a comparison and in some cases even a contrast to what God is going to do in the future. In the future, God is going to do another global destruction. Only this time, it's not going to be eight people spared in a physical sense. This time, God is going to wipe out everything, but he's going to use not water but fire. 
He's going to destroy the world with fire. That's what the scripture says. And I know that there are some, in my view, who teach error, saying that this is not referring to a, a, a physical destruction of the world. But, but if it's not, then the, then the example of Noah makes absolutely no sense. The only reason why Peter's bringing up Noah is because he wants his reader to understand that just like what happened in the days of Noah, God is going to do that again, if, if, but it's going to even be more severe. There's going to be more destruction. It's not going to be hitting a reset button on the things living on the earth. God will destroy the world with fire, literal fire, just like you had literal water in the days of Noah. That's the point Peter is making. That's what makes sense in the context. And so, and so Peter wants his audience to know that God is going to do this. He will send global destruction again through fire. And in verse number seven, notice what he says was going to happen to the ungodly on that day. He says that on the day of judgment, God's going to bring destruction. Destruction. Not just physically, but spiritually, because the judgment day will occur on this, on, on this day. Destruction would be upon the ungodly. So, let's now move on to verse 8. In verse 8, in, in case people want to know when exactly is this going to take place, there are a couple of things to notice here. First, in verse 8, we learn some things about God and time. You know, we operate on time. We watch the clock. We're always trying to make sure we keep a schedule. Peter's point in verse 8 when he says that one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day with God, his point is time is nothing to God. God doesn't operate on time like we do. God dwells in eternity. How we view time is very different to how, than to how God views it. So God doesn't operate on the time like we do. We look at 2,000 years as a long period of time, but to God, that, that's, that's nothing. That's nothing to one who, who dwells in eternity. So he says, this will happen when the Lord is ready for it to take place. In fact, in Matthew 24 and verse 36, Jesus says that only the Father knows when he's going to send his son back and destroy the world according to what this text says. So God right now is exercising patience. And why is he exercising patience? Well, if you look at, at verse number 9, he says the reason why God is exercising patience is because he doesn't want anybody to perish. Instead, he wants all to come to repentance. My friend, if you're watching this video, if you're not right with God, be thankful the day of the Lord or the day when the Lord's going to come back and the world is destroyed. Be glad that hasn't occurred yet. Understand that, that God is, is holding off still because he wants you to repent. He's being patient because he loves you. And he wants people to repent before it's too late because once this day takes place, or if you die first, whichever one comes first, there's not going to be any more time left to repent and get your life right. So God is being patient towards his coming judgment because he wants all to come to repentance. And then in verses 10 through 13, or 10 through 14, he says some things about this coming day that I want you to highlight in your Bible, okay? First in verse 10, he says the day of the Lord, this day in which the Lord is going to come back and the world is destroyed, is referred to as the day of the Lord here. The day of the Lord. 
He says it will come. Despite what the mockers and the scoffers say, the day of the Lord will come. And it will come, verse 10 again, like a thief. Paul used the same language in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Come like a thief, meaning it's going to come unexpected. Many people are going to be, be caught unprepared. There are not going to be any signs and warnings that precede it like in the case of the destruction of Jerusalem. If you remember, when, before God destroyed the destruction of Jerusalem, God said there would be several signs and warnings that will accompany that so that Christians would know to get out of Jerusalem before the Romans came. That's not how it's going to be when the Lord destroys the world. There will be no signs, no warnings. It's going to be just like that. It's going to be like a thief. And in verse 10, he says that when it happens like a thief, the world will be completely destroyed. You know, you know some say, well, this is referring to the Lord destroying the old covenant in 70 AD. That's what preterists like to say. This is referring to, this is figurative language describing the end of the old law. My friends, that's not what Peter is talking about here. Here, Peter is talking about a physical, literal end of the world. A day in which the world is destroyed by literal fire, just like it was destroyed by literal water in the days of Noah. Peter says this will happen. And in verses 11 through 14, he says this should impact how we live. Because we don't know when this is going to happen, because it will occur like a thief, Peter says in verse 11, we ought to live holy lives as a result. We ought to be godly. We ought to be eagerly anticipating it, according to verse 12. We ought to be looking forward to new heavens and a new earth, a new order of things, going to a place, heaven, where we don't have to experience the things we're experiencing now in this life. Verse 14, we ought to be diligent. We ought to be diligently seeking to be found by God in peace, spotless and blameless. Peter says the coming day of judgment should impact how we live right now. It should impact us to always make sure we're living right and pleasing before God so that we won't be called unprepared if this day occurs in our lifetime. And then in conclusion, in the last few verses of the book, Peter goes on to, to give some final exhortations. If you notice in verses 15 through 16, he talks about the writings of the Apostle Paul. Paul was also one who talked about the coming of the Lord the coming day of judgment. He says that Paul wrote some things that are difficult to understand. And isn't that true? I particularly think that when Peter is, is talking about Paul's writings here, he's probably making a reference to the book of Romans. Romans has some very difficult things in it. And I think Peter is acknowledging that here. There are some things we got to really work hard to understand when it comes to the writings of Paul. And it is interesting how when you look at what Peter says in verse 16, he says that, that people abuse Paul's writings. He says the untaught and unstable distort the scriptures to their own destruction. Isn't that so true with the book of Romans? I mean, much of Calvinistic doctrine and other false doctrines, particularly false doctrines about salvation, there, it comes as a result of false teachers abusing Paul's writings, particularly the book of Romans. So, so Peter's definitely right about that. But notice how he calls Paul's writing scriptures. Notice how even in the first century, the early Christians recognized New Testament scriptures. 
They recognized that Paul's writings were scripture. They didn't need some Catholic church to come onto the scene several hundred years later and, and vote on what was scripture and what was not scripture. The early Christians recognized the scriptures. They recognized Paul's writings as scripture. That's what Peter says. And then Peter concludes the book in verses 17 through 18 by giving some final admonitions. He says in verse 17 that we need to be on guard. Be on guard that we're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Be on guard against false teachers. Be on guard against men who teach error about the return of Jesus. Be on guard against men who teach error about salvation and other things pertaining to the glorious gospel. And not only be on guard, but in verse 18, he concludes the book in the same way that he starts it, by saying, grow. Grow in the grace of God and grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Grow by reading your Bible. Grow by studying your Bible. Continue to grow, even though we're not able to assemble like we desire right now as God's people due to the coronavirus. That doesn't mean we still can't grow. That doesn't mean we still can't read our Bibles and pray and study our scriptures every single day in our homes with our families. And so that is the conclusion of this video. It was just a brief overview of this, this book. I appreciate you listening. Again, uh, we're going to have outlines available for this video. I also want you to know that we're going to be doing these videos, having these videos available on Sundays uh, and Wednesday nights during our normal Bible class hours. And so even though we're not able to have Bible classes right now, you will get these videos during those times so that you can still study and keep up with the Bible class schedule. And so this Wednesday at 7 o'clock, Lord willing, we'll have a Hebrews 1 video, and then we'll have Hebrews 2 the following Sunday. I want to thank you for watching and listening, and I hope this video was encouraging to you.